What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles. The Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Listen to learn about my RightFit method from my guest interviews. The Beauty Queen Talks. My guest today is Napa Valley's Kelly Fuller, who propelled herself from Beauty Queen to vocalist to talk show host of Kelly in the Morning, which replaced the Imus show on KVON when Imus was fired. Kelly, take us back to your childhood. I know that your grandfather played an important role in your life. Tell us about him. Good evening, Arlene. It's great to be here. My grandfather was absolutely instrumental in my childhood. And not only was he very encouraging and supportive of me and anything that I wanted to do, but he gave me some advice, if you want to call it that, that I took with me and never let it go. When I was quite small, he said, Kelly, you can do anything you want to do. You can have anything you want to have as long as you're willing to work for it. And I believed it. And that's really driven me all of my life. What did he do, Kelly? What was his career? <clears throat> well, he worked at a place called Mare Island um, out in Vallejo, and he worked with machinery. A uh, very intelligent man, also very musical, and uh, very much into computers and that sort of thing. So would you say that he gave you the impetus to feel empowered throughout your life? Absolutely. He certainly, you know, he, he was an orphan, and he came from um, a lot of different foster families growing up. He had a really rough childhood, but uh, he had a, a beautiful marriage and um, really found that inner happiness, and he was able to pass that on to me and encourage me and really let me know that I, I could do anything I wanted to do, but I did have to work for it, and there was the, there was the key. <laughs> What's it going to come to be? Well, you have been working, so we're going to talk more. (laughs) At age 18, you started competing in pageants, Mm -hmm. won your first, 
mm-hmm. and became Miss Napa County. Yes. You continued competing. What motivated you? What did you learn? And for how many years did you compete? Well, the motivation initially was the opportunity to sing in front of an audience. I never imagined myself being in a pageant. Growing up, I was never particularly attractive, and I was kind of a nerd. (laughs) But there was a talent portion in the competition, and that's really why I did it. Once I started, and once I got in, I realized I could earn money for college, and I also could continue to improve myself in so many ways through the pageant system. And that propelled me through, and I actually was able to pay for my college education by competing in in pageants and winning, and also started working with a a well-known vocal instructor, and I was able to use that money to help further my career. Can you give us some idea as to how much they paid you? I'm kind of curious about that. Well, this is a long time ago. But that's all right, Kelly. I've never spoken with a former beauty queen before. So let's tell, I'm sure our audience would like to know more, how you put yourself through college, paid for vocal lessons. How did you do it? Well, it wasn't just the pageants, but I will say this was back in the 80s, the mid to late 80s, and just into about 1991. I did it from the age of 18 to the age of 24. And depending on if I won or was a runner-up, I could win anywhere from two or $300 up to a couple thousand dollars. And then a lot of times that came with gifts and things that, you know, a wardrobe and that sort of thing that helped. Um, opened a lot of doors for me. Now I'm sure it's a lot more money than, than it was back then. But I also worked, um, always had a job in addition to doing the pageants and put myself through school through those two, two avenues of working, maybe like a nighttime job, and then going to school during the day. I guess you kept your grandfather's advice um, close to you as yes. you were growing up. Yes, Absolutely. Did you feel as if you were competing against others or competing with yourself in the sense of raising the bar higher and higher? Well, you know, that's something that I learned in the pageant system, too. And there really is no such thing as competing with others because I have no control over what anyone else does, but I have control over myself. So I can continue to make what I have to offer better a more attractive package, more skills, more education, experience, knowledge. And that's the only thing I can control. So through the pageant system, it was really obvious to see that you're really competing with yourself. And that's really how it is in life, too. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, I must say that you're a good example of someone who knows how to win without competing. Mm -hmm. I'll have to refer to you as the win without competing woman. Yes, absolutely, and that's why your book really resonated with me. Good. Let's go further. Okay. I'd like to hear about your marriage. Mm, Romance. Romance, of course. What could be better? We've touched upon beauty. We've touched upon money. We've touched upon competing with ourselves. Right. Um, How old were you when you met your husband and got married? And tell us all about that. Well, I was 20 years old 
when I met my husband. And to be perfectly honest, I wasn't sure that marriage was for me or having children or anything like that. I came from a situation where there was a lot of divorce in my family, and I thought, well, I didn't know if I wanted to go through that. But I had such a deep friendship and love with my husband um, through our dating years that I came to realize that I couldn't base my life on anyone else's life. And so we uh, were together for four years when he proposed, and I said yes. And as a matter of fact, it was right soon after my last pageant, (laughs) so we waited. And um, we were married a year later, so I was 25 when we got married, and I was 30 when we started our family. What would you say was the blueprint for your right fit husband? Because I know from having talked with you that you did have an image in your mind. I did. I needed... Oh, and I don't want to interrupt you, Kelly, Mm -hmm. but you must tell us, and of course we'll all keep it confidential. Oh, yes. Does he still match the blueprint of the right fit (laughs) husband? Well, after 22 years, I'm going to say absolutely he still matches it. (laughs) What I was looking for in a life partner was someone that, first of all, had to have a sense of humor. And this guy is so funny. He makes me laugh. I was always a sucker for a man who could make me laugh. And he had to be a respectful person. He had to respect me as a person. And one of the, the, the things that we had talked about early on in our relationship, and we've held true for 22 years, is we both agreed it was very destructive in any kind of a disagreement or argument, no matter how angry you are, to call each other names, throw insults, and you're just getting off topic, you're hurting each other, and it's really hard to take that back. And we both agreed that was true. And I would have to say, through our whole marriage, all of our entire relationship, we never did that. We certainly had our disagreements, we certainly had our fights, our, our anger, but we were always able to take a moment, take a breath, and not let it degrade into something that we would want to take back later. And that was really important to me also, someone who was not quick to anger, didn't have a big temper, who was patient, someone who was very compassionate and caring towards those who are less fortunate, towards just human nature, towards animals. And he was definitely all of those things. So, and, he still, and he still is. He's a wonderful man. So I definitely did have an idea of what I was looking for and maybe even an idea of what I didn't want, if you will. Oh, that would be good. Let me, mm-hmm. Maybe you should tell us more about that because I do a lot of career coaching and mm-hmm. inevitably people do talk about their personal life because after uh-huh. all, one is connected with the other. Right. And quite often people are not clear about the concept of a blueprint. Mm. Sometimes it may be easier to start with talking about a blueprint of a husband or a significant other. So tell us what you didn't want. I didn't want anyone who was the glass is half empty. I'm definitely a glass is half full kind of person, and I usually see the bright side of just about anything, and I needed that in a partner. I needed someone, again, who was not quick to anger, who did not have a short temper, a short fuse. And someone who 
kid communicates and express themselves. Um, so definitely not someone who was going to do the silent treatment, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so definitely looking for someone who was the positive rather than the negative, and I think that was really important. And I could sense you can sense that in a person, I think, right away when Absolutely. you meet them. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think, too, sometimes if someone is negative, I don't think you recognize the long-term impact of that, but apparently you did. I don't think everyone, some people say, oh, well, I can put up with this or I'll ignore that. Um, But I think it's very good that early in life you recognized what you wanted clearly and Mm -hmm. what you didn't want. Yes. Do you know if he had a blueprint? Did you ever ask him? <laughs> That's a great question, Arlene. I've never asked him, but maybe oh. I will after, after this. the radio show. Yes. Absolutely, do ask him. <laughs> yes, I will. Good. Let's go further. You had mentioned about singing, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know: Is this something that you learned that you could do as a child? When did you really discover that you were a singer? Well, I certainly loved to sing from a very young age, and my mother tells the story that I was singing before I could walk. And my my father um, is a musician, and so the bands would always practice in the garage. So I, I was hearing it in the womb, and I knew <laughs> all the songs right away. But it wasn't until I was about 12 years old that I think – Maybe I'd never really thought about it. I just loved to sing, and I didn't think about whether I had a good voice or a bad voice. And my mother really discovered that I had a good voice. And at about the age of 12, she would make me sing in front of her friends. (laughs) And I was very nervous. I really didn't like it for the most part. But I grew to enjoy it and, and to get very involved in singing. What type of songs do you sing, Kelly? Would you like to sing something for us? Oh, you know, I I probably don't like to sing right on the speed and put on the spot. You know, it's not that comfortable for me, but um, I'm working on a show right now ah. with a, um, a, a gentleman that plays piano and guitar, and we're doing kind of a cabaret-style, kind of soulful R&B, but some standards some of the old standards that you would recognize, like someone to watch over me, but then some of the little bit newer R&B songs, just kind of a mix. But I like that intimate cabaret setting with a little bit of a smaller audience so you can see everybody and you have a little bit of talk in between the songs. Is that something you'll be doing in Napa Valley? Is that what you're anticipating? Yes, absolutely. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. I will. Let us know. I will. Uh, I can always post it on my Blog Talk Radio blog announcing your appearance. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, let's go further. Okay. The Meadowood Resort. Oh, yes. A playground for the rich and famous. Oh, yes. Tell us how you got there and how you became the chief concierge. Well, I started working in hospitality in the Napa Valley, which is not that uncommon. It's a very popular tourist destination. And as like most in the industry, I started at the front desk. And I started working at a lodge up valley. 
and I got really into it. I loved meeting the people that would come to check in, and I'd strike up conversations with them, and they would always ask me, what should we do? What winery should we go to? What restaurants should we visit? And I started creating itineraries for these guests. And this is a smaller lodge, so they didn't have a concierge. And in fact, I'd never heard of a concierge. I didn't even know what it was. And eventually, people were so happy with my itineraries, and someone said, you should be a concierge. And I said, okay, I better find out what that is. And then it turns out there was an opening at Meadowood for concierge. And I went and applied for it, and I got it. And that's how I started. And then a few years down the road, I became chief concierge, which means, you know, basically that I supervised the concierge department. Give us a little inkling of what it was like to work with the rich and famous. It was mostly really fun. It's the kind of job where you have to live it if you want to be good at it, which means you have to know everybody in the area, all of the maitre d's, all of the winery owners, the people that run the tasting rooms. You have to be able to pull favors and, and do some extravagant things for your guests. Um, and so you have to always be out in the community and out working and meeting people. But it was really fun, and I got to meet a lot of celebrities. I got to meet um, owners of big companies like Nike and Pepsi and that sort of thing, and, and that, that kept it fun. I enjoyed it. It was a fast-track life, though. It really was. What are the, some of the unusual things that you were asked to do that were hard to arrange, would you say? Mm-hmm. You know, nothing, again, back to my grandfather. You can do anything, right? Right. I, I loved a challenge. I loved it when they asked for something that was not easy to get, and I never thought of it as hard. I just thought, I'm going to get it. It's just, let's do it. Um, my, one of my favorite stories was a man who called, and he said, I have everything. I have more money than I could ever spend. My wife and I have been all over the world. We've done everything. We've seen everything. And we are not doing that well in our marriage, and I really want to work on that, and I want to bring her to Meadowood, and I want to just blow her mind and make it so special and intimate and romantic and wonderful, but I'm at a loss because we're jaded. (laughs) So I said, let me think about it. I ended up having a convertible Packard limo, all white. It's a beautiful day, of course, in the valley. Come pick them up at Meadowood. There was a beautiful bouquet of flowers in, for, for the lady in the limo. Had it um, dri- you know, go on a little, little tour just to enjoy the valley. They ended up getting on a helicopter, had them flown to a bluff overlooking the ocean. It was only accessible by helicopter, and I had a very high-end chef and caterer they had created a beautiful like a dining room on this bluff for their lunch and they sat and had the lunch and then of course flew them back and he loved it it sounds charming it just was so so much fun and exciting to be able to do this for them and money was no object of course that's always fun, spending someone else's money. <laughs> right. So you had a great time doing that. I loved it. And he was so happy and so appreciative. But then you decided to leave Meadowood. Um, my understanding is that you wanted to help 
people who need, not just want. Right. Tell us more about that. Well, at that time, um, I had been working at Meadowood for about five years, and I, um, my husband and I decided that we were going to start our family, so I got pregnant. And, you know, that changes a lot. And I realized that, first of all, I was going to need to change my lifestyle a lot. I, was, I wanted to be with my baby and not out at every party every night and, and doing all that I was doing. But I also, after five years of just completely loving my job at Meadowood, but I did start to feel more nurturing. Like I really wanted to help those who were in need. Um, and from a very young age, I, I've done volunteer work. From the age of 13, I've worked in retirement homes and um, for Special Olympics and just done a lot of things, and that, that was a draw for me. So I decided it was time to make a change. And just about that time, I was contacted by our local hospital who wanted to implement a concierge department in a hospital setting. And it was this whole new idea and they wanted me to come do it. And it was perfect timing, so I accepted. Let's peek into the big interview at the hospital. Oh, my. And how you used your Miss America training mm-hmm. to win your job without competing. That was quite the interview. I've been in many pageant interviews, and they do grill you with five or six judges at a time and politics and so on, but this interview was in a, uh, a room, a large room with one of those great big tables that kind of runs the length of the room, and there were board members and department heads all the way down either side and down the bottom. I don't remember exactly how many people, but there were probably anywhere from 15 to 18 people sitting at that table. And, of course, I just had my baby six weeks ago. <laughs> how, did you, how did you dress for the interview, Kelly? I wore a suit. I wore just a navy, nice skirt and, you know, jacket suit. Um, understated, but I had a little scarf with it for some color. And, you know, I just tried to look professional and put together. And I came into the interview and sat down. They had put me at the head of the table And they just fired questions at me, and I just relaxed and had a great time and answered the questions. And one of the – you always say in the pageant system, if you can make the judges laugh, that's that's a great thing. Well, it's the same thing in an interview, a job interview. If the people interviewing you are so comfortable with you that they're laughing, that's that's a very good thing. Well, and also, too, it means that you're sharing something with them together. And I think that's very important, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Just to be yourself and to relax and have fun, but also to get across what, what you're trying to say and to answer their questions. And one of the, there was a, a, an interpreter there, the head of the interpretation department, and they were looking for someone who was bilingual in Spanish and English. And she asked me, can you speak Spanish? And I answered her in Spanish, and I said, yes, I can speak Spanish, but I need more practice. So I was being honest with her, but I was showing her that I could speak Spanish, and they all burst out laughing. Laughing. Well, at first I, I was nervous. I thought, oh, no, did I say something wrong? <laughs> and they thought that was wonderful because everyone, every applicant they had asked before 
simply answered, yes, I speak Spanish, but didn't speak Spanish to show them they could do it. Right. So they, so they realized how great. smart. Right. They realized I, how smart. Yeah. Right. I answered her in Spanish, which seemed to me to be the logical thing to do. Well, also, too, I expect that their blueprint included wanting to select someone who could think quickly on his or her feet. Don't you oh, agree? Yeah. Absolutely. And so you showed them. You immediately responded by speaking in Spanish. So I think right. that was terrific. Did yeah. you actually use the Spanish after you started working there? I did. We have a large Spanish-speaking population in the Napa Valley, and it was very helpful to be able to direct them if they needed questions answered. We didn't really act as, that much as interpreters, although on occasion when they were strapped, we might help a little bit. But we were just there to help guide them through the hospital, whatever they needed. So to be able to have that conversation or to help them register and get their address or whatever information we needed, we could do that at the concierge desk. Now, you mentioned that children has had an impact on your career. Yes. Tell us about being a doula. What is it, and why did you become one? A doula is a woman who is trained to assist women through childbirth, to offer comfort measures, emotional support, and very often information. She's not a midwife. She's not a doctor or a nurse. I mean, she, she might be, but in the role of a doula, she's there just to lend that emotional support and that presence, that calming presence. And scientific research has shown that a woman with a doula usually has a shorter labor, less complications, less usage of an epidural or medications, and a lower rate of cesareans. Not that they don't have, no one ever has any of those, and that's not necessarily the goal, but it's just a calmer woman's going to have a better birth, and a doula is there to help her stay calm and as comfortable as possible. And with my births, my first birth, um, I didn't have a lot of resources. I bought the only book, I won't say the title because I don't want to disparage it, but the only book that was available in my town is not one that I recommend to my clients at this point. And I took a childbirth class that really wasn't all that wonderful. And once I went into labor, I was kind of put through the system, you might say. And I had what I call the typical American birth, the narcotics, the epidural, the complications, the baby being assisted with the delivery. And, and I had a baby that didn't nurse well and was colicky. It was just really a challenge. And then... I got a computer, and I got on the Internet, and this was in 96 when this all happened, and I realized it didn't have to be that way. It could have gone differently. I did not have the information I needed to make the choices that were right for me. And when I started educating myself, I wanted to share it. And so I would end up in the grocery store talking to some nine-month pregnant woman saying, you know, if you get in the shower, it's really going to help with your with your contractions, and, and I'm showing her partner, look, if you squeeze her hips like this, it's really helpful. <laughs> Here's how you can rub her back, and everywhere you were doing I went. This in the, you were doing this in the, in the supermarket, Kelly? Oh, yeah. This is, 
this must have been terrific. You must have been an in- you must have been the featured person of the day in the supermarket. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it would just we'd strike up a conversation somehow. I'm a friendly person, and I'd say, well, I don't I don't mean to be pushy, but would you like some information? <laughs> and it was, I was so passionate about it. It was so important to me that women have the knowledge and the choices, the options. Uh, they don't know their options. They don't have them, right? And so someone finally said, you should be a doula. And I said, a what? The second time I become something I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> and so I looked it up, what's a doula? And I said, wow, I can do this for my job? I'm in, sign me up. And I took my training right away. Um, but before I did that, before I became a doula with my second baby, I had an, a simple unmedicated birth. I had this information now. And I had a midwife who acted as a doula, who got me in the shower, who gave me massages and all these things, and I had this beautiful, uncomplicated birth. So really, that was what motivated me, the the juxtaposition of the two births and seeing the difference and seeing how much better it could have been had I been given all my options. And so that motivated me eventually to become a doula. So are you still a doula? I am. I mean, once you become a doula, you're you're always a doula, but I'm not currently taking clients because I'm working in a five day a week job where I can't go on call for them. A doula is on call for the the family, the woman, and so you don't have a shift. You get paged or you get called when she goes into labor, and when you walk out that door, you could be gone for twelve hours. You could be gone for forty hours. You don't know. Tell us a bit about catching babies. I know you had mentioned something about catching babies. I know our listeners will love to hear about that. There aren't too many guests that I have that are busy catching babies. (laughs) Well, that was never intentional because a doula does not catch the baby. But there were two different situations. I mean, I've been to well over 100 births, and it's just going to happen eventually that someone is going to have such a fast labor that there's nothing anyone can do, that baby's going to fly out. (laughs) And this happened to me twice. (laughs) And, I mean, there was just nothing anyone could do other than grab, grab me some towels, put my hands out so the baby doesn't hit the floor. And that's what I did. So I've caught two babies. Boy, I mean, you really moved fast. I mean, God forbid the baby would have fallen onto the ground. <laughs> when I hear, Kelly, the baby's coming now, I, don't, I just get over there and get ready. <laughs> oh, in case the baby's going to be flying. That's oh, terrific. and I'm sure it is. When A mom usually knows. When that baby's coming out, she knows. She'll let you know. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like something you should be videotaping. Oh, wouldn't that have been wonderful? No, it was just me. I mean, there was no one else there, and everything was perfectly fine. But um, in the moment, it's a little bit scary. But once it's over and everybody's fine and you have help on the scene, then we can just smile about it and say, wow, it was nothing. there's nothing like feeling a brand-new baby just come right into your hands. It's just... It was such an incredible experience, and I'll treasure both of those times. I'll treasure them forever. Clearly, you're a right-fit doula. Definitely. <laughs> I love it. Tell us about your husband and you from the perspective of never using child care. How did you manage to do this? Well, it was something that was very important to us, and 
when we got pregnant with the first baby, we really weren't in in an excellent financial situation, which I think can happen to most couples. We had a lot of credit card debt. And so we just made it a point to start paying off the credit card debt, and we decided what we would do. I wasn't able to just quit my job and stay home. So if you remember, I switched to this this local hospital, Queen of the Valley, and so I was able to work out within my my own hours because I was going to be creating this concierge department. So what we did was worked opposite shifts. And what we would do is I'd work early morning until about midday, and then my husband would bring the baby to the hospital, and we'd do the baby exchange in the lobby. (laughs) He'd go to his job, and I'd go home with the baby. That sounds like an interesting arrangement. You did this on a regular basis? Yeah, we did it for quite a while, and we did it with the second baby too. And it worked just fine. I mean, you have to make time for each other. You have to, but that's the case. Even if your children are in daycare, you have to make time for, for each other as a couple. But when you're passing two ships that pass in the night, you really have to say, I'm putting in my calendar, we're having dinner together, or we're doing this together, or that, or we're getting a babysitter, and we're going out to make sure that you're still making time for each other. But it was really important to us that we were the ones raising our children. Do they know that you used to exchange them in the hospital lobby? <laughs> or they're going to know now when they listen to the show? They'll know now. <laughs> I don't know if they really thought about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, it's, quite, it's quite intriguing. Now, let's hear about what we're all waiting for. Mm-hmm. Kelly in the morning, how did you become a talk show host? Well, I'm still kind of surprised. <laughs> Wasn't anything, I don't think, I guess now that I've told you my story, I guess nothing I really, not much did I aspire to. Most of it just happened. Came along and I saw the opportunity and I jumped at it. Well, I think, hold a second, Kelly. Mm -hmm. Repeat that last line. Um, You saw the opportunity and Mm -hmm. jumped on it. Exactly. And I think that's worth exploring. Let's let's talk a bit about that before you go into detail about Kelly in the morning. Because I think sometimes we don't always um, see that an opportunity is right in front of us. Can you expand upon that? Well, yes, because sometimes I think we can get so set on this is what I should do. Right. I went to college for this, therefore this is what I should do. I don't want to throw away my college education, but you're not. You always have that training and that knowledge and experience and accomplishment, but that can also take you other places that you never dreamed of. And when you see an opportunity and it speaks to you and you're excited about it and you want to do it, do it. If you don't like it, you can always change your mind. It's not a do or die. It's not one career. It doesn't have to be one career for your whole life or one company for your whole life. You can just keep moving along, keep reinventing yourself. Well, I think it's important to differentiate between should and want. And quite often, people have difficulty differentiating Mm -hmm. because they think that you should, then therefore you have to want to do it. And they're two separate things. Right. Absolutely. Now, 
tell us about how it all happened, how you became Kelly in the morning. Well, it's kind of a funny story. I finally had thought, I'd gotten to a point where my children were a lot older. They were in school. I had all this, this free time. And I thought, maybe I can get back to my music career now. I don't have to be home with babies. And just as I'm making the plans and actually working with someone about getting into a band, my husband comes home one day, and he was chatting with a friend of ours who's the music programmer at the radio station. And he said, you know, there's no nighttime DJ at the station, and we think that's, that's not a good thing. It's kind of, we, it, they need a DJ. And uh, I said, Kelly can do it. How do you feel about that? <laughs> and I Gee, said, I like your husband. What is his name? But we, we don't oh, want to keep Tom. Him. Tom. Okay, Fuller. we don't want to keep Tom a secret here. No. The man's a superstar. Oh, so he's the one. <laughs> he's who, the one. Ah, he's the he's one. He's your manager. I love it. He is, and it's funny because he works in media relations, and he's met a lot of people. And there was an agent years ago that had heard my voice and said, your wife has a beautiful voice. If she ever wants to get into voiceovers, let me know. But I never explored it. It, was, it didn't really appeal to me and just never went there. But he said, you know, I think you'd be good at it. You have a nice voice. Why don't you try it? It'll be fun. And I said, okay, what do I have to lose? I called the station, and they said, come down tomorrow. <laughs> I said, okay. I went down. They showed me how to do it. And now this was just what we call voice tracking which means there's a computer system, the programmer puts the music in, and you record your breaks about four an hour, and uh, you might talk about the music that just played, the music that's coming up, and anything else you want to chit-chat about, and then you plug it into the system so that I could record it at midnight if I wanted to, and then the show would play the next day from 6 to 10 p.m., so I could kind of work it into my schedule, and I was still taking clients. I was still going to births, and um, it was really fun. And I wasn't content to just say, that's the song that just played, here's the song coming up. I would talk about my personal life, and I would make jokes and just have fun, have a good time. And so I did this for a few months, and at one point the general manager said, how would you like to do this in the morning? I said, I'm not a morning person. He said, you don't have to get up. It's voice tracking. You can still record it any time you like, and it will play in the morning. It's the same thing you're doing, only we'll play it in the morning. I said, okay, why not? And then a few weeks later, I got called back into the office thinking I was going to be fired. <laughs> because thinking I thought you were going to be fired. Yes. Why would you think that? Isn't that funny? I guess it, because he said something like, oh, I need to talk to you in my office tomorrow. And this was the night before I, I was in voice tracking, and he said, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, really? And he seemed serious when he said it. And I said, really? Is it bad? Oh, no, 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 no. no we'll, we'll, we'll talk tomorrow. So it just huh, sounded no. like I was getting the brush off. <laughs> ah, but Kelly, we don't want to make any assumptions. That's so true. Absolutely. That's because so true. Yes. I mean, uh, in my book I talk about, in fact, there's a whole chapter that I devote to make no assumptions, open those doors. That's right. And that's really key. So that was an example of a time that I made an assumption, and I was wrong. Absolutely. I was very wrong. (laughs) So now, let's hear what happened when he closed the door. (laughs) He said... 
we'd like for you to have a live morning show five days a week. And I was so shocked, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> and I Do you said, know I, why he made that decision? Did well, he was, explain it? It was him and the owner, from what I understand. And I think they were just looking, first of all, Imus had just been fired. Now, this radio station has an AM and an FM. The FM, of course, plays music. The AM is talk shows. So they had this big slot from 6 to 9 that was Imus. Well, now Imus was fired. What do we replace Imus with? And then they thought, we can simulcast Kelly's show on AM and FM, and it will be about the locals for the locals. We need, it's a local radio station. Let's, let's expand this. Let's improve this and make it a live show, and we can have contests, and we can have lots of interaction with our listeners, and we can have interesting people on to be interviewed. And we can fulfill the AM side because there's interviews and talk, but we'll also have some music. So the FM listeners, will it will be a little transition for both. But that, of course, meant you'd have to get up in the morning. Oh, boy, yeah. That How did changed. you feel about that? Because you told us earlier you didn't like the morning. I, di- I didn't. And, you know, I actually took a few days to decide if I wanted this job because it seemed like a really, really big thing. I had to learn how to tech my own show. I do all the sound. I produce it. I have to get the guests, book the guests, control the schedule, and, of course, coming up with the ideas for the features and that sort of thing. It was really big. But I decided to do it. And, you know, it it still is a little tough, but I don't have any trouble being energetic in the morning. Because I just go to bed earlier. <laughs> well, that's that's a good solution. Simple it's enough. Simple. It's just that simple. Go to bed earlier. And How many hours do you spend preparing? Because I mean, it's a long show. I mean, a three-hour right. show isn't a trivial task here. Right, right, right. Well, um, after my show, I spend you know during the week each day probably around two to three hours in my office communicating with people, booking guests, that sort of thing. And I have to say, you know, sometimes I'll come up with ideas when I'm at home. I mean, it's almost kind of a round-the-clock sort of thing. I'm always thinking about it when I'm out in the community, meeting people. Oh, I'd love to have you on my show. Or other people suggesting to me who should be on the show. And So it's, it's almost around the clock. But you sound like you love it. It is really fun. It's really different. It's nothing I've ever done before. So it is, it, and what I like about it is it's still a making a difference in the community. I'm able to highlight some of the nonprofits. Um, the local musicians have a platform because we do a Musical Monday. We get information out there that's important to our locals, and uh, it can be a lot of fun. And when I hear back from the listeners that something was very helpful to them or it, it lifted them up, that's what makes it worthwhile for me. What's interesting is that. Every position you talked about, mm-hmm. you expressed passion. Yes. I have a lot of passion. <laughs> did you have this as a child, too? Whatever you yes. did, you were passionate about? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Because I see passion basically as our career fuel to succeed. Yes. I agree. I agree completely. And again, that's why your book resonates with me, because... I thought, gee, I lived your book. 
I think you did. <laughs> and that's why you're our win without competing woman. It's yes. terrific. Tell us, how do you balance your professional and personal life? You have Tom. You have two children. Right. Tell us a little bit about the two children, how old they are, and um, things that we they don't want you to tell us. Because everybody <laughs> always wants to hear what other people don't want to be told. <laughs> well, my children um, are 10 and 12. Adam is my uh, 10-year-old, and Alexandra is my 12-year-old. And, you know, they are just delightful children, and it's such a joy to, to be their mom. We, again, very passionate about having children, and so I researched everything. We're in a Waldorf school, and, um, you know, to, to balance being a mom and a wife and to take care of myself, that's something I did have to learn. I'm a nurturer. I'm a giver. So really giving to my husband and my children wasn't such a challenge, but giving to myself was a challenge for me, and that's something that I've learned over the years. And for me, it's scheduling everything. I have to put it in my schedule, in my book. I'm so busy. I have so many things that I'm doing and events that I'm going to now with I've got my show, and then I get invited to all these fundraisers and events, and I'm doing MC work, and I'm going to be singing soon. So I have to schedule in there and look at the schedule and say, well, wow, I've got all this going on. I need to say no this week to anything someone's, and I'm, I'm full now. And make sure I carve out that time for my family and carve out that time for me to go get a massage or to have some quiet time where I can just sit and think or read or take a long, hot bath, you know. And I think it's being conscious that it is important to balance your professional life with your personal life. That's the only way you're going to feel good about what you're doing. And that's how you keep the passion. That's how you keep the energy and keep it going. Also, too, I mean, you just know how to, what I call, manage the process, to take charge. Rather than um, your world running you, you're running your world. And I think that's very important. That's really true. And, you know, if you look back over all the careers I've had, when, when it was time to move on, I could recognize that and move on. And that was okay, and I'm okay with that. I don't feel obligated to stick with something for 15 years just because. If it's no longer serving me, if it's no longer the right fit, because it can change. And where some career was the right fit for five years or eight years, or 10 years, but then it wasn't the right fit anymore. And so then I moved on to something that was the right fit. Well, I think it's terrific that you're able to identify that. Mm -hmm. Quite often people are not. They just continue doing something that's the wrong fit, right. but you pull yourself out and move on. So I think your ability to reflect is very important. Do you also discuss this with let's say, your husband Tom or your friends, or is this something you just think about yourself? How do you make these decisions? It's a real combination. It's something that starts with me because I'm aware of my situation. And then I always, always run it by Tom, not just because he's my husband, but because he is very smart and intuitive and he knows me so well. And he always seems to have the right thing to say. So he either, usually reflects back to me what I'm feeling and helps me sort it out. 
So he's a wonderful resource for me. I'm, I'm very blessed. I would agree. <laughs> well, Kelly, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on my show today. And I am sure that the listeners were absolutely delighted with our conversation. And I hope that you will join me again soon. Thank you so much, Arlene, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Kelly, and have a wonderful day. You too. Next week, please join me again on Wednesday, February 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. A nationwide compounding center for patients and pets. One-stop shopping. My guest is entrepreneur Arthur Margolis, third-generation pharmacist, founder and owner of America's Compounding Center, which has carved out a unique niche in the marketplace serving patients and pets. Barrow Global Search, Inc., of which I am the founder and CEO, is sponsoring two unique contests. We are searching for the right fit, not the best. Think about that for a moment. We are searching for the right fit, not the best. Watch for two press releases which will appear on on newsreleasewire.com. The first will be released tomorrow, February 19th, and the second on Friday, February 20th. On Friday, the press release will be posted on my blog, on Blog Talk Radio, and drbarrow.com. So you'll be able to read both on my sites. I look forward to hearing from you. Please email me at drbarrow, D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com, or call me directly, 310-441-5305, that's 310-441-5305, to read excerpts from Win Without Competing, please visit www.winwithoutcompeting.com. And if you decide you like to read Win Without Competing, you can purchase it quickly at Amazon. Remember this trigger tip. It's all about you. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, and Career Coach One. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.